9, starting at verse 14. We'll read through to verse 34. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with him? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him. And so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away, the girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. That is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, well, warm welcome to you from me. I'm John. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, especially uh, a warm welcome to you if you're visiting us this evening. I'd love to personally visit you afterwards. Uh, but please take a moment now, turn around, greet each other, welcome each other in the Lord. Grab an outline if you find that helpful and I'll call you back in about 30 seconds as I set up. Okay, friends. Well, let me um, ask you to come back. Please con- continue those conversations afterwards. Well, tonight I'd like to begin with a a serious question, and it's a confronting question. And that is, if you were to die tonight, now God forbid that to happen, but if you were to die tonight, and you were standing at the gate of heaven, before God, and God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? 
How would you answer that? Think about it. Now, I suspect some of us would have thought about this question already. For some of us, perhaps this question never entered our mind. But it's not an easy question to answer, is it? Now, how would you answer that? If you were to die tonight and God was to ask you, why would I let you in? What would you say? Now, what about our world? Let's think about our world, our society, our culture, our city, our nation. How might the people around us answer this question? Well, I guess it depends. Depends on their worldview, their particular belief system. So, I suspect if, if that person's a Buddhist, the Buddhist might say, well, we don't believe in any god or any gods. We believe in heaven and nirvana. And the Buddhist might say, well, if I live a particular way, if I... Uh, live a life where I empty myself of all my desires, if I live my life according to the laws and the rules and the teachings of Buddha, then maybe I'll get there. That's the Buddhist way. What about for a Muslim? Well, for a Muslim person, a Muslim person might say this, if I live according to the strict rules and laws of the Islamic belief, if I, if I follow the five pillars of Islam, pray and fast and give and go to Mecca if possible, if by the end my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then maybe I'll get there. It's perhaps what a Muslim might say. What about a Hindu? A Hindu person will probably say, well, it's all about karma. If I do good, then I expect good to happen to me. If I do bad, if I do evil, then bad and evil will come back to me. So whatever goes around comes around. In the end, it's the good weighing against the bad. And if there's enough good, maybe I'll get there. What about the atheists? Now, some of us think atheism is not a religion. It is a faith system itself. Now, what might an atheist say? Well, the atheist would say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven. But an atheist might say, if there really is a God and if there is a heaven, then the atheist might say, well, I'll probably get there because I'm a pretty decent person. I'm all right. I try my best in life, I'm nice and kind to people around me, I help others, I help the lady cross the road. Surely if there is a God, I don't believe that there is a God, but if there is a God and if there is a heaven, he'll accept me. It's perhaps what an atheist will say. Now, of course, around the world there are so many different worldviews, so many different belief systems, so many different faiths in a sense. They're so different and so diverse in so many ways. But yet there is a common thread that ties them all together. I wonder if you notice that thread. There's a thread that ties them all together. You see, what, what is in common with all these different worldviews is that there is some sort of cosmic economic transaction that is needed. There's a transaction that's needed. I do good, good happens to me. I do bad, bad happens to me. You see, this is, in a sense, the prevailing belief of the human heart. If I live a good life, then if there is a God, he owes me. If I live a good life, then if there is a God, then he must reward me. If I live a good life, if there is a God, then I deserve wherever this heaven is. Now, do you see how this transaction works? You see, it's like, I'm living a good life, and so I'm paying my taxes to this cosmic being. I'm paying my taxes by trying to do good, love others, care for others, and if I pay my taxes, I expect my returns. We do that with the government, don't we? We want good roads, good education and so forth. Now, if you think about that, Judaism, the religion of the Old Testament, the religion of the people of God, is really no different to that. There is this cosmic transaction. 
And so the whole system of Judaism, the system, the structure of temple worship, of sacrifices, of fasting, of praying, all of those is to deal with this transaction, this cosmic transaction. It's the way of human life. It's in fact the way of the human heart. Nothing's for free. If I want something, I have to give something. If I want something good, I need to do something good. But yet, when we come to our passage today, I want you to open up your passage to chapter nine, Matthew chapter 9. When we come to our passage today, Jesus comes along, enters into the world, and what he does in our passage, he ushers in a new age, a new way of living, a new way of relating to God. It's the age of the Messiah, the age of God's King. And what he does in our passage is he smashes, he destroys, he overturns the old way of relating to God. No longer will you be dependent on your own efforts, your own religious duties. He smashes all that. He says that's incompatible with who he is. And so it's out with the old and in with the new. That's what we'll see today. It's out with the old way, the old way of the human heart, and it's in with the new. So let's have a look at this. You see, when we, when we read of Jesus coming to earth, the eternal Son of God, the one who's been with God for all eternity, when we read of his birth and him coming as a human being, we often think he's just like one of great, the great men of history. You know, just like Moses. Moses gave us the law. Socrates gave us philosophy. Pythagoras gave us maths. Hippocrates gave us medicine and Jesus gave us salvation. Jesus is just like one of the great men. But you see, to put Jesus on par with the other humans of human history is to misunderstand the person of Jesus. It's to get him terribly wrong. You see, Jesus is not just another man. Jesus entering, coming into human existence is the coming of God himself. And so when he was here at this dinner, confronted by these people, they were in the face, in the presence of God, God's very own son. And so when God comes, it was not just another man. When God comes into this world, everything changes. Everything changes. And so that's why when we look at this passage, the disciples of John the Baptist, they came to Jesus, they were confused. Why is this guy so different? They were wondering, why is he so weird, in a sense? He's got this authority, he teaches with, he's got this power, he's doing all these wonderful healings, but he's not living the Jewish way, so strange. And so they came to him and they asked him, look at verse 14. They say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, fasting was part of the Jewish way of life. It's, it's to express mourning, express sadness, express repentance. And so the disciples of John the Baptist, they were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, and they noticed, Jesus, why are you so different? What's wrong with you? Aren't you a Jewish man? Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting? But then look at what Jesus says, verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? That's a strange reply. Why did Jesus say that? What does that mean? Now, the reason why Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom is because in the Old Testament, there's a special relationship that God has with his people. It's like a marriage where God is the bridegroom, where God is the husband, and his people are his wife. 
And so it's this special relationship God has. And so when Jesus comes, he's saying he's the bridegroom. He is in fact God. You see, from passages like Isaiah 54, we read this. For your maker is your husband. For the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And so when Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom, he's saying, I'm your Redeemer. I'm your maker. I'm your God and I'm here in your presence. And so if I'm here in your presence, you can't be fasting. You can't be sad. You can't be mourning. You should be rejoicing. I am your God and I am in your presence. It's been like a couple of weeks ago, some of you will remember, I went to Sydney for a conference for five days. I left Yvonne home alone with our three kids and it was a time of mourning for Yvonne, not for me. It was a time of mourning, of sadness. Probably wasn't any fasting. Yvonne would still cook for the kids, I'm sure. But upon my return, that was the time of rejoicing. Your husband is home, Yvonne. You should be happy. Over the moon. The best day in the year for you. <laughs> but here you see, it's not just, it was not just another man. It was God himself, the divine maker, the redeemer in their presence. And when he comes, and he did come, everything changes. No time for fasting, no time for mourning. That time will come. Jesus will be taken away. And so what did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Well, that's what this next bit is about. Now, when I was a younger Christian, uh, reading this about the wine and wineskin and sowing, I had no idea what this was about. So confusing, so cryptic. I, I don't like sowing. don't want to learn about the sowing. Wine, didn't really care less. But what's this about? Well, you see, what Jesus was getting about here was that with his arrival, something new has come. It was the arrival, the dawning of the messianic age, the coming of the Messiah, their saviour, their God. It is the new age. You see, it was time for the old to be done away with. And so Jesus comes now and what he does was, he in a sense smashes the old way. All your old ways are destroyed. He overturns the structures of Jewish religion. And so all those things that they depended on, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, a Jewish person would, would go to the temple to meet with God. A Jewish person would offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. A Jewish person would need the priest to be their mediator. All that is done away with. It's gone, it's past, it's made redundant with the coming of God himself, with the coming of God's son. And so Jesus says, you don't need to go to the temple anymore. If you want to meet with God, I'm the temple of God, you come to me. No longer need to be in Jerusalem. If you want to offer sacrifices, well, that's not needed anymore. All those animals to atone for your sin. I am the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. If you want the mediator, the priest, well, you don't need them anymore. I am the great high priest, the one between you and God. And so Jesus sort of destroys, overturns, smashes this old religion, this old way of relating to God. And so Jesus was like, in a sense, the new cloth, the new wine. It's incompatible with the old one. The old one can't contain him. You see, when you put new wine in old wine skin, the old wine skin's been stretched, it's brittle, the new wine will start to ferment and eventually it will explode. And so the old 
way cannot contain him. And so we read this from verses 16. Have a look. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wine, uh, the wineskin, the, wine, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And so with the coming of Jesus, there's a new way. The old is out. It's out with the old. Now, there's a guy in the Bible that you would have read off, realised this, and when he came to realise this, he, he used really strong words. That was the person Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now, do you remember when he described the time when he became a Christian? He wrote about this in the book of Philippians. Now, Paul, you see, was like your perfect Jewish man. You want to look at what a Jewish person looks like? You look at Paul. He was circumcised, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, in a sense, perfect according to the standards of the law, blameless according to the law. And so if anyone could be saved the Jewish way, well, Paul was your man. He was as Jewish as you can get. He was great, a Pharisee. But then listen to what Paul says when he considers all his religious efforts, all the work he's put into trying to win his favour with God. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I count them rubbish. I count all of that former life rubbish, garbage. Now, that's a nice way of putting it. That's the NIV translation. If you go back to the King James Version, it is, I consider it dung, manure, excrement. It is that bad because it's useless now that Jesus has come. Its time has passed. It's redundant. And so when Jesus came, there was the new way that he brought the messianic age and the old he smashed, he destroyed, he overturned. So what are we to expect from the new way then? How can we be sure that Jesus did bring about something new, that it was in fact the messianic age, the age of God's kingdom? Well, what follows in this story in our reading are sort of like proofs or evidence that it was the dawning of the messianic age, that Jesus is in fact and was in fact that Messiah who brings this about. You see, the Jewish nation, they've, they've been waiting centuries for the coming of their Messiah. They've been waiting a long time for, for, for the time of peace, when things in their kingdom will be restored. They've been waiting so long, but they've been given a hint of when that will happen. You see, in the book of Isaiah, we read this, This is the time of the messianic age. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute mute tongue shout for joy. See, that's a clue, a hint in, in Isaiah that when that happens, your Messiah has come. Your king has come and it's the new age, the age of God's king. And so what do we see in the following passage? What were the stories? Well, we sort of see exactly that. We see the sick girl, she's saved. The dead is raised. The blind man sees. And the mute man speaks. And so let's have a look at these stories. First we meet this, this girl, this, this lady who has been bleeding for about 12 years. Now just imagine having that 
that sort of disability, bleeding for 12 years, non-stop, she not only faced death daily as she was losing blood, it was a tough life, but not only that, she was a social outcast. See, according to the Jews, if you, if you bleed, you're considered unclean and so no one wanted to be around you and you can't be around anyone else. She was kept away. And in fact, anyone she touches will become unclean as well. So just imagine her life, the loneliness, the sadness, the despair. But yet here she, she thinks of this thing. She decides to touch Jesus. Now she knows she's unclean. If she touched anyone, that person will become unclean as well. But yet here, she decides to touch Jesus, believing that she will be healed. In fact, the word is not healed. She believes that she will be saved. We lose that in our translation. And so what, what happens when she approached Jesus from behind and touched his cloak? Well, Jesus did not become unclean. Rather, she was cleansed. She was saved. That's the word. She was saved. That's a hint. That's a clue. It's a coming of the Messiah. Things are turning around. What about the second story? Well, here we meet the dead girl of the local ruler. Now, her situation was not just hopeless. She was dead. It was completely hopeless. And according to Jewish laws, if you were to touch a corpse, a dead person, you'd become unclean. That's what would happen. What did Jesus do? Well, he went in, he took her hand, he touched her and she rose back to life in the presence of everyone there. A dead girl coming alive. Another hint, another clue. This is the age of the Messiah. He has come. Third, we meet another story of two blind men. Imagine living life where everything is pitch black. It would be terrible, it would be so scary. Now, both these men were blind. They could not see. But yet they were perceptive, you see. They were extremely perceptive because they called Jesus the son of David. Now, what's so good about being the son of David? You see, David was the great king and the promise from God to his people was that there will always be a king from the line of David and one day there will be a king who will reign forever. Ever. And so they recognised this is that great king from the line of David. They were perceptive. And so what did they do? Well, Jesus went to them. Jesus touched their eyes and so the blind men started to see. They gained their sight. Another hint, another clue on what we saw in Isaiah. Now, finally, there's the mute man, oppressed by an evil spirit. And without any effort, the demon was cast out and the mute man started to speak again. Perhaps his first words in years. The mute speaking... Now just think about this situation. These miracles were happening and just say you were in the crowd, you were following Jesus along, you're seeing Jesus do all these things. If you know your Bible, if they knew their Bible and they remember this verse from Isaiah, they would be thinking, this is amazing. And that's what they said, it was amazing. We've never seen anything like this in all Israel. Because it was the coming of the Messiah. He has come. So the health for the sick the life for the dead, new sight for the blind, new speech for the dumb. It was the coming of God's king. And so if you're a Jewish person, you should be able to put two and two together and they should have seen that. But not everyone did. So what what do we see here? The coming of the king of God, this new age that he brought about, 
It was coming, but it was also giving us a glimpse of where it will end up. You see, it was also giving us a glimpse of when this new age will be consummated. And that is, it's giving us a glimpse of what heaven will be like. You see, in heaven, all those things that torment us and destroy us and break us down in this life will be gone. Sickness and disease and cancer, that won't be a thing of heaven. The things that hurt us and break us down, they won't be the thing of heaven. Death will no longer plague us. There won't be any death in heaven. And so what we're getting here in these miracles is a glimpse of heaven, of the future of this new age when it's consummated. So if you think about that, that is heaven. Anything that afflicts us now will be gone with. The things that hurt us, how we hurt each other, that will be a thing of the past. There won't be things like gossiping or slandering in heaven. That will be a thing of the past. Everything will be perfect, perfect bliss in heaven. Now, think about that, that's, that's glorious. Everything will be made new. And if you think about the, thing, the people we know, the friends and family and the sufferings they endure, the things that afflict them, they are not the things of heaven. I remember Esther saying to me uh, a few times, uh, my right eye is smaller than my left. You know, in heaven, my eyes will be the same size, perhaps even bigger. You see, heaven <laughs> is what we have to look forward to where everything will be perfect. And that's why one, one theologian, Bonhoeffer, he says this about heaven. He says, No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrection and not been homesick from that hour. You see, if you think about how, heaven, how, how glorious heaven is and how great it is, actually should actually make us homesick. We want to be there now and I want to be there now. So Jesus comes along, he brings in this new age, this new age gives us a glimpse of heaven. Now in these miracles, who are the people that benefit? This new age has come. Who are the people that belong to this new age of the Messiah? Well, remember the old way, the old religion, the way of Judaism. You see, the default position of the human heart is that we're engaged in some cosmic transaction with God. You know, if I've done my bit, God, you owe me. If I've paid my taxes, God, you owe me. And so let's think about what the proper response was towards Jesus. The girl, what did she do? She could have come up to Jesus in front of him and she could have said to Jesus, I've done my religious duties. I've done all that is required in the law. I've lived a good and decent life. And so she could have said to Jesus, surely you must heal me. I deserve it. She could have engaged in this transaction with Jesus or, or the blind men. They could have come up to Jesus and they could have said something similar. We've offered our sacrifices. We've done our temple duties. We've done all that is required by the laws of Moses. You are meant to make me see. You owe me. You see, they could have approached Jesus that way, right? They could have engaged in this cosmic transaction, but what did they do instead? Well, the girl, what did she do? Verse 21. If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And how did Jesus answer? Well, Jesus honoured it. He says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. You see, that's giving us a clue on 
who will be the people who are included in this new age of the Messiah? It is those who respond by faith. And what about the blind men? They, they, they said, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus honoured that. Verse 29, he says, according to your faith, it will be done to you. So then again, that's giving us a clue. Those who belong to this new age, this kingdom of God, are those who respond by faith. So the new age has come. The Messiah has brought it and it belongs to those who believe in him. Those who surrender themselves completely, like these people. They recognise, I am not worthy of anything from you. You don't owe me anything. I don't deserve anything from you. But I believe in Jesus and I'll throw myself upon him, upon his mercy. Those are the people that this new age, this kingdom of God belongs to. And so it's out with the old and this is the new. Not by your works, not by your religious efforts, but by your faith and trust in Jesus. Now I want to return to my question at the beginning. If you were to die tonight, it's a tough question to answer, isn't it? If you were to die tonight, God also asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my heaven? Now, some of you might find this an easy question to answer. Some of you might find this a, a difficult question to answer. But it's a question about life and death, isn't it? How you would answer that question. It's a question about eternal life and eternal death. It's a question you do not want to get wrong at all. It's a question you want to make sure that you get sorted out before you actually get to, uh, get to answer that. You see, how you answer that question now actually shows and reveals, not just to you but to those around you, where you stand before God. Are you with the old or are you with the new? How you answer that question actually reveals a lot about where you stand. So how, uh, how is it? Where do we stand? And where do you stand? Well, you see, those who get into heaven do not get there on their own efforts. What will get us into heaven does not lie with us. See, the Pharisees thought that. If I do all the Jewish uh, duties, sacrifices, go to the temple, do all my Jewish requirements then I deserve it. That's the default position of the human heart. That's the transaction, the cosmic transaction that we all think. If I'm good, then I deserve it. Then God owes me. Now, if you're thinking that way, that you get to heaven on your own efforts and merits and your good deeds, the thing is, it won't work. That's in fact what Jesus came to destroy, to smash and to overturn. You cannot get to heaven that way. If you think about it, Jesus is really saying that's, that's foolish because it doesn't work, it's dangerous because it doesn't work and not only that, if you think about living life where you get to heaven by your own efforts and deeds and good works, it's actually crippling, it's paralysing, it's crushing because how do you know? If you were asked tonight, why would I let you into heaven? How do you know you've done enough good? How do you know if you've lived your life right in the way that God wants. How can you be sure? In fact, you can't be sure at all if it actually depends on us. Instead, what will get us into heaven lies completely in the person of Jesus. You see, when he came, it was not just another man. 
It was the coming of God himself who offers us a way into heaven. The answer lies with him. He becomes the focal point of this new age because he is the Messiah of this new age. He is the king of this new age. And so if we're still thinking, you know, what's the transaction, this cosmic transaction? Well, if anything, it's not a transaction between us and God at all. We can't offer God anything. In fact, it's a transaction that Jesus does for us on our behalf. And that's what Easter is about. We're going to be celebrating Easter this coming week. Easter is about Jesus doing this transaction on our behalf. And what's the price for us to enter into heaven? It was his death on the cross for us. And so if you actually understand that, it should actually be a weight off your shoulders. The burdens taken away because you get into heaven does not depend on you anymore, does not depend on me. And so there's actually nothing more relieving, nothing more reassuring, nothing more comforting to know that I get to heaven not on what I do but on what Jesus did. That is satisfying to know. Because if you think about it, I'm thinking about my past week and the various sins that sort of bring me down and cripple me because I know this and I know that my entrance into heaven does not depend on me, it actually does not matter if I turn to Christ and believe in him. And so if Jesus, if God was to ask, why should I let you into my heaven, my kingdom, what will you say? If it's because of me, because of you, it just won't work, won't work at all. My answer will be, it's all Jesus. It is all Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Saviour, who died that I might live. What will your answer be? Well, I hope your answer will be the way of faith, just like those in this story. So let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus who did bring about this new age, the age of your kingdom, the messianic age, where he is Lord and Saviour.